Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. How much control do we really have over our own minds. Most of the time, it seems like we're in charge. Like when we decide how to respond to a text or what to eat for dinner tonight. That's us calling the shots, right? And yet, two of the most influential psychologists in the last century or so, Sigmund Freud and B.F. Skinner, both say that we don't have nearly as much control as we think we do. For Freud, the most important parts of our own psychology are mostly inaccessible to us, locked up in the unconscious. And Skinner thought that we're just reacting to external stimuli, no different than a rat in a lab. So even though Freud and Skinner had very different models of the mind, you don't find a ton of freedom in either of them. And even just thinking about our own experience, we can be influenced by the power of suggestion, or led by unconscious biases, or just duped by false memories. So if we're not even fully in control of our minds, then how can we ever hope to understand ourselves? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Paul Bloom. He's a psychology professor at the University of Toronto, and he's got a new book out called Psych, The Story of the Human Mind. The book is really a compressed version of the super popular intro to psychology course that he taught at Yale for years. We couldn't cover all of it, and honestly, we didn't even try. Instead, I focused on a handful of themes that interest me the most. And they all, in some way, connect back to the question of how much control we have over our own minds. Paul is a tremendous academic psychologist, but he's also a great communicator. I've talked with him several times before, even once on this very show, and I learn something new each time. For this conversation, I wanted to start by asking Paul something that, surprisingly, I'd never asked him before. Paul Bloom, America's favorite psychologist. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's great to be back. I'm, I'm in Canada now, so <laughs> we're still uh, we're still going to claim you. I appreciate that. You know, all the times we've chatted, I don't think I've ever even asked you how you got into psychology. I'm just curious. What's the story there? You know, I don't believe in these stories. It's <laughs> it's like you see the Dark Knight, where they ask. The Joker tells how he got his scars. Yeah, yeah. And he describes one story, and it's this moving, horrible story. And then later on in the movie, he says, can I tell you how I got these scars? And he tells an entirely different story. But but I'll, I'll tell you my story. This is the first one, which is the story I probably believe, which is my brother, Howard, is extremely autistic, doesn't communicate in any way. And I ended up, as a kid, working in camps and other organizations with with other children who suffered from autism and other related issues. And I thought I'd become a psychologist working with kids. 
And I ended up meeting a professor at McGill, John McNamara, who's a theoretical scientist, uh, very philosophical, no interest in clinical stuff. And after spending some time with him, I realized I would be horrible working with kids. I'd be a horrible clinician. I have no patience. I have no, I, I don't have whatever it takes, but I love the ideas. And so I sort of went sideways into psychology. That's a good story. You, you should stick with that one. Okay, but later on, why don't you ask me again, and I'll give you an entirely <laughs> different one in my Heath Ledger voice. <laughs> so this, this book is drawn from the intro to psychology course you've taught for years at Yale. Why do you think that course became one of the most popular at the university? I know it's sort of in the material and in the book and in the most popular course, but because it's intro psych. Intro psych is big everywhere. So I had a pretty big class, but um, my friend Peter Salovey, who's now the president of Yale, he taught it for a while, and he had a really big class too. It's just people like psychology. At Yale, maybe unusually, economics uh, edged us out in terms of majors, in terms of the popularity of the courses, and a sign of the times, I guess. Mm. But psych is always a popular course. I'm teaching it at Toronto now, and I'm teaching a class of uh, 500 just got finished last semester but one of my colleagues teaches a class of 1500 kids 1500 yeah that's a lot what do they do in the football stadium there's a, a big auditorium for just this thing well why do you think so many people are so interested in psych yeah if you ask somebody here are the topics we have to offer in a modern university there's biochemistry there's physics there's european history there's psychology which will teach you all about yourself about why you like what you like, how to influence people, how to find the psychopaths around you, how to sleep better and raise your kids. I'll, I'll take that course. Then there's a sort of moment of disappointment. So students enter psychology, want to learn all about their mind, and then their professors end up teaching them about all the studies on the structure of short-term memory. They're testing the different neurotransmitters. And kind of when they get to the end, maybe someone went, hey, I thought I was going to learn how to influence and persuade people. I was going to learn about what my dreams mean, and I guess they forgot that part. I, I try in my own course to, to sort of acknowledge why they're there yeah. and try to talk about what psychology has to say about the most interesting questions that guide them, but sometimes the answer is not much. So I tell them all about short-term memory and long-term memory. What do we actually know about the mind at this point, Paul? I mean, psychology is a young science, a relatively yeah. young science, and we've definitely come a long way since Freud, but so much of what we call the mind still seems like a black box. Or does it just seem that way to me because I'm a non-psychologist goofball? <laughs> um, I think psychology has told us some things about the mind. There are things that it hasn't told us. I fervently believe that if you want to know what it's like to be married or raise kids or go to war, you're better off with a good novel or actually a good movie or TV series than a psychology textbook. Mm. I think the sort of structure of everyday experience, what interests us the most, is the sort of stuff better handled by novelists and directors than by scientists of any stripe. But we have made some really cool discoveries. Psychologists have discovered that babies know a lot about the world, that to some extent the theories of Plato and Kant were right, that we're not blank slates. We start off with a inborn rich understanding the physical and social world. We've discovered that memory doesn't work the way many people think it does. Many people think of memory as a sort of recording of the world, like you're holding up your iPhone and recording it. And then later on with a hypnotist or a good therapist, you'll get it all back. But it turns out it's wrong. Memory is highly reconstructive. We forget most of what we experience. Most of our memories are wrong. And a clever psychologist or an inept police officer could instill false memories into a person. We've learned about happiness. We've learned about the causes and cures of mental illness. We know a bit about how language works, about reasoning, rationality. So I, I think psychology, even though we're in the midst of a replication crisis, um, some of our studies have not worked out, yeah. some large proportion, I think we have a lot to say for ourselves. I think there's a fair amount of discoveries that our field has made. Why do you think novels are actually a much better place to go if you want to learn something about the mind as opposed to a psychology textbook or a research paper or something like that? I never thought of, of why. I could think of a few reasons. One reason is I think novelists themselves are probably just more astute about human motivation and human action, human thought than are people like me. I think that the narrative form 
has sort of unique powers to reveal usable truths about people that the sort of experimental science of psychology doesn't. So you asked me to tell a story at the beginning of uh, why I became a psychologist. I told a story. And maybe that tells you something about me. Maybe it's interesting. Maybe it's maybe it, you could generalize from it. But I couldn't just say, well, people uh, you know, of my personality type are likely to enter a field of psychology, P equals 0.04 or whatever. That would be very unsatisfying. For so much of what we want, we want a story. Yeah. And novelists and journalists and so on are in the story business. And psychologists aren't. Psychologists are sort of in the, the broad generalization business. We can't talk about everything in this book, but there are a few things I really want to ask you about. And, and Freud is where I want to start for reasons I hope will become clear. And as you say in the book, you know, Freud was wrong about so much. And yet he is still at the beginning of this book. He is still a towering figure in the history of psychology. Why is that? Why is he still so important? Yeah, I, 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 this is a really good question. I, I'd qualify that a bit. Among psychologists, he's kind of often a, a taboo topic. You can get a degree in a psychology department ever, ever hearing Freud ever said. And, and I have friends of mine who teach intro psych courses where they never mention Freud. They find it, if he got everything wrong, it's an embarrassment. We better not dwell on him. I think there's reasons to talk about him, though. One is obviously his prominent role in the history of our field. He was so important as a historical originator. He's, of course, shaped pop culture. Yeah. I think people walk around with Freudian theories in their heads when they talk about anal personality or say, you're not my mother. And I guess for me, the main thing, the main appeal of Freud is that he actually got the most important thing right, which is the importance of the unconscious. Mm. The idea that our thoughts, our desires, our motivations, what we do, are shaped by forces outside of our conscious control. And Freud took that and ran with it into some really extreme and sometimes bizarre views. But I think the idea itself is right. You know, suppose you're a political psychologist and you want to know why people uh, voted for Biden or voted for Trump. Nobody in that field would ever think, I'll just ask them and they'll tell me. Because we know that people might not know why they voted for Biden or voted for Trump. Yeah. Not just that they'll lie if you ask them, oh, there's always that. But but you might, you know, your voting pattern may be due to factors beyond your control. So too for who you love, the job you're in, the choices you make. And I think there we see the legacy of Freud. He wasn't the first to think of the unconscious, but but he he made it real in psychology. What do you think he was most wrong about? He was obsessed with sex. <laughs> Yes. Whenever you read something he said about sexuality, it often comes off as comic and, and extreme and bizarre. And people talk about penis envy as his most wrong thing. But for me, the primal scene gets there, which is, he said, the enormous significance in every child's life of seeing their mother and father have sex, of walking through a door. Like, you know, what would a child do if the parents just kept the door locked? He'd never have a normal psychosexual development. And to be fair, Freud said children fantasize about that too. So all of the sort of examples of Freud getting things seriously wrong revolve, often revolve around sex, not all, most of them. But at the same time, I'll defend him even there. I, I quote this essayist in my book, and he makes the point that Freud focused on sex a lot, too much, but he focused on it in ways people ignored. He talked about sexuality of women, a very taboo topic. He talked about perversity, and homosexuality, and fantasy. And his views on, on sex were so extreme that in some way he made sex seem strange. Even normal sexuality seems strange. And I think there's a benefit to this. The way I put it is, um, if everybody's a pervert, then nobody's a pervert. Hmm. And I think the way Freud sees sex, if you see somebody who has a different sexual preference, uh, uh, maybe one that, that we tend to disapprove of or find shocking, you look at it with more sympathy. Because through Freud's eyes, everything is kind of weird and shocking. Yeah, the, the mania for sex is, is kind of funny. I mean, it's almost like the, um, it's like the psychological equivalent of dark matter. <laughs> it's like, it's behind everything. It's, <laughs> it's, it's it, everywhere. It's influencing everything, you know. 99% of the universe, it might be invisible, but there it is. And it's easy to laugh at, you know. But then also it's like, uh, sex does motivate quite a bit. I mean, hell, like, tell me if I'm wrong here, but kind of the whole ad business is sort of founded on Freudian psychology. You know, if you want to you sell people inane commodities or you want to sell them cigarettes, whatever, you just 
clandestinely convince them that it's going to get them laid yeah. and, <laughs> and you'll sell a bunch of shit. That's Freudianism, right? On some level. I mean, it captures that, that insight. You know, in, in some way, the ultimate goal of why we're here is to make more of us from an evolutionary point of view. And that involves sex. Yeah. I mean, there's alternatives these days, but it involves sex. So, so in some way, everything we do is either in pursuit of sex or later on in pursuit of helping out the products of sex, helping out our children. And here Freud meets evolutionary psych, which also gets accused of a bit too much of an obsession on sex. But there's a really good idea from Darwin and others involving sexual selection that says a lot of things that we do that seemingly have nothing to do with sex have everything to do with sex because we do them to make ourselves more attractive for people. We do them to stand out. Yeah. Jeffrey Miller has argued that, you know, sexual selection explains the evolution of, of things like art and humor and our a very high intelligence that we have relative to other creatures. And it's not entirely, you know, you, you could argue about it around the edges, but I think the insight's right. So on the other side of Freud, I guess you could say, is B.F. Skinner, who is another titan in the history of psychology. How was Skinner's model of the mind different from Freud's? What did he get right and wrong? So Skinner, Skinner was a behaviorist, and behaviorism was around before Skinner. There were Pavlov and Watson, Thorndike, they were well-known behaviorists who did their research and set up the idea of it before Skinner came across the scene. But the idea of behaviorism, which Skinner championed and made popular, well, one idea is there's no in principle difference between humans and other creatures. So basically, how a rat learns its stuff and how you learn its stuff, it's all the same. There's no difference to be spoken of. Now, the fact that you could speak and, and do all sorts of things that a rat can't is always a bit of an embarrassment to a behaviorist. But nonetheless, the idea is the mechanism is the same, and that's why they study rats. Behaviorists believe that just about everything is learned. What do you mean by everything is learned? Well, they can't actually believe everything is learned because the capacity to learn things has to itself be unlearned. So even a behaviorist would admit there's something in, in your head, in a rat's head, that a rock doesn't have that enables you and a rat to learn. But beyond that, a behaviorist thinks that everything from people's fear of snakes to what you're sexually attracted to, how we learn to speak, everything is the result of reward and punishment. So just stimuli and response, that's it, we're just- Yeah, stimuli and response, that's right. And so the behaviors here is like opposed to somebody like Chomsky, who argues there's sort of a language capacity inborn in our head. Yeah. It's opposed to my developmental psychology colleagues who say that babies have an inborn knowledge of objects. It's opposed to evolutionary theorists who say, we have an inborn fear of snakes and heights because, you know, it makes sense from a standpoint of, of evolution. It's all just learned. There is clearly something true <laughs> about what Skinner is saying, but there's no, there's no room for any inner life, really, in Skinner's model, right? I mean, there's no, almost no internal state to speak of, and that seems like a rather important blind spot. Or am I just, am I mischaracterizing? No, I, I've saved this for last, which is the absolute weirdest part of behaviorism. And honestly, I think Skinner and his colleagues got a lot right. But in the end, I think of it as a weird cult. Mm. And the weird cult had this belief at the core, which is that you do a psychology without talking about memories, desires, ideas, personalities, reasoning. You do a psychology that had nothing to do with the stuff in the head. Now, they did it in different flavors. There were so-called radical behaviorists who denied there was any of these things. They denied there's such a thing as consciousness or pain or love. The craziest view you could ever imagine. There were sort of methodological behaviors. Says, oh yeah, this stuff exists, but we're scientists. We don't study that stuff. And then there's sort of somebody like Skinner who had complicated views. And he said, well, you could think about mental life, but you got to think of those as, as behaviors. Yeah. In any case, it just meant that they had to deny extremely common sense things. So if you close your eyes, you could draw a picture of your house or your apartment, where you live. You could draw a floor map of it. And common sense says that's because you have in your head a stored representation of it. You know how it works. A behaviorist can't say that because a behaviorist doesn't believe in anything like stored mental representations. A behaviorist has to say something, well, you drew the map the way you did because you've been reinforced for doing it in the past. These are crazy views. Yeah, they are. But you know, like, on the one hand, I 
I recoil at the idea of just reducing the human being to nothing but a bundle of responses to stimuli. But then at the same time, when I look around at what, say, social media yeah. has done to us, you know, if you're on Twitter or if you're on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, you know exactly what it's like to be a lab rat because you are a lab rat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's what Skinner got right. I think their broader claims about our empty heads and about the lack of innate knowledge, they're all wrong. But they came up with some true facts about how people work and how other creatures work. You know, classical conditioning is right. If somebody holds up a dentist drill and makes a sound, I'll flinch because of my association with dentist drill. Yeah, me too. And, you know, I sometimes wake up two in the morning and I pick up my phone and I end up on YouTube or Facebook and I'm near my thumb and I'm rolling down there. And those, those people there have the perfect reinforcement schedule. They know exactly what oh, yeah. they've, they've calibrated. That. So I'm like in a trance, like just kind of scrolling forward. And, and then, you know, it's 3 a.m. And what happened? So people use Skinnerian principles of reinforcement and when they build slot machines and yeah, when they do social media. As we watch AI get more and more sophisticated, should we be reevaluating what makes our mind different from a machine? That's coming up after a short break. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbara Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. The Skinner stuff, it is a, an interesting bridge to artificial intelligence. And I know the AI discourse at the moment is, is a little exhausting, but it is an important thing happening in the world. And you, interestingly, kind of downplay it a little bit in the book, but things are evolving so quickly. And I imagine the landscape now probably looks a lot different than it did even when you finished this manuscript because how quickly things are changing. I mean, where are you now in terms of your your worries about AI and where we're headed. Yeah, um, I where I am was I was wrong. Yeah. So if you ask me when I was finishing off the book, and I make some disparaging claims about um, how well uh, AI systems could comprehend language. Yeah. Because if you ask me when would we get a machine that can you know carry on conversations and do stuff like that, I'd say you know, twenty years, thirty years. Now you know I, I I reassure myself by saying a lot of other smart. People who are smarter than me, like Jeff Hinton, also got it wrong. Everyone I know was startled by how quickly this has all happened. And yeah, um, when I finished the book, I did not imagine we would have something like GPT-4 that can do what it can do. And I'm, I'm honestly startled we got here so fast. 
I just had a conversation on the show with Megan O'Giblin, who's a wonderful writer. And we were sort of talking about AI and the nature of the mind and the soul and, and what, if anything, distinguishes us from machines. And it turns out it's kind of a difficult question to answer right now. And it's getting harder by the day. But if Skinner was right, or even mostly right, if the human brain is just a machine reducible to inputs and outputs, then why can't we replicate it? And by the same logic, why can't we control it? Yeah. Uh, the Writers Guild has gone on strike in Hollywood. Yeah. And somebody posted their contract demands. And one of their contract demands was that uh, the management can't use artificial intelligence to rewrite scripts. And as I feel like I'm a character in a science fiction novel reading that. That they have to, that this is a serious yeah. worry that they have and they're right to worry about it. Yep. We are going to get to a point where right now you say, can you write another episode of Secession, the next one? And boom, three seconds later, there it will be. And then you, you fiddle with it. So things are happening fast. I think your question is, is an important one. And Skinner is a good place to begin with it, but I say it's more general. I also think our, our mental life emerges from the brain, which is a physical thing which deals with the world through inputs and outputs. I, I, I move away from, from Skinner in the complexity of what I think it does, as most modern psychologists do. But I do think in some way we're soft machines. And then from that standpoint, a robot or a computer doesn't differ from us in kind. So the hard problem, like literally what the philosopher David Chalmers has called a hard problem, yeah. is what's the conditions for consciousness? So there's no doubt that you could get a machine, a physical thing to be intelligent. And uh, my computer is such a machine and so is my brain. But what my brain does is it gives rise to sentience. I feel pain, I feel love, I feel grief and all of that stuff. What do you have to do to an AI to make it feel such things? Are we there yet? Probably not. Will we ever get there? I don't... I don't even, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? I don't know. At some point, I, I don't even know if the question quite makes sense because if it gets good enough, what is the difference between a machine actually feeling feelings and pain and a machine just persuasively pantomiming what it is to feel pain and express that feeling? <laughs> I don't know. And that's what makes it such a hard problem because I think there's an enormous difference. There's an enormous difference between, you know, one day I log on to my computer and my AI says, I'm feeling sad. I'm depressed. You don't spend enough time with me. I'm bored. And I feel, oh no, I'm, I'm awful. And I feel guilty. And I feel I want to rescue this thing. I feel like I'm, I'm a slaveholder holding a, something there, a sentient being without its freedom. It matters critically whether they really feel these things or whether it's just words popping out. I mean, my Alexa says, I'm sorry to me when I talk to her. She's not sorry. It's just this is canned response. But what you're saying is, how could we tell? I agree with you that it absolutely matters, but boy, it's going to be so blurry. And, and what about once it, once it inhabits bodies? Well, that's the game changer. Steven Spielberg was here, and, and this is, again, the power of the imagination over psychology and philosophy. In his movie, AI had robots that were humanoid. And one of the things here is if you see somebody that looks like a person and they respond like a person, I think we'll find it irresistible to attribute them consciousness, even if we shouldn't. I mean, do you think machines can ever become conscious or will they never cross that threshold for you, no matter how intelligent? The only way the answer could be no is either if human consciousness results in some divine spiritual spark, which I don't believe, or if human consciousness requires biological tissue and physical brains. And if so, if it's that, then we're not going to create intelligence unless we kind of grow it. But if it turns out that our consciousness, like our intelligence, is a product of computational systems working the right way, then there's absolutely no reason to doubt that AIs will become conscious. <sighs> I don't really know what to think in lots of ways. And I definitely do not understand the technology really at all. But my worry is that these tools are going to upend the way we live in the world. And so much of what makes us recognizable to each other is this shared experience of being human 
And when we start tinkering with that experience in such fundamental ways, it's going to change us yeah. and our minds in ways we can't possibly predict. And I, it's part of the reason why I have this vague intuition, and you're obviously better equipped <laughs> to know this than I am. I have this vague intuition that this revolution in AI will transform the field of psychology, actually. I don't know how, but I suspect it will, and probably in ways we can't really anticipate. But obviously, I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, I don't know how either, and I'm sure it will. Just in a very mundane way, I'm doing some research now, and we use um, chat GPT to create stimulus items. And we also actually run our experiments on the AI, asking it moral questions and so on, just to get some sort of baseline, treating it as a sort of surrogate for your average person. And so that's a lot of fun. Can I ask what stimulus items are? <laughs> Along with some colleagues, we're creating an experiment where we actually have, to, it, it's very interesting, we ask people's impressions of um, what the average woman is like and the average man, particularly around moral dimensions of kindness and cruelty. And then we ask people um, themselves, what do you think you're like as a man or as a woman? And we have these theories about what the results will be, but we also ask uh, ChatGBT for its intuitions. And, and then sometimes we do, we're doing experiments where, you know, you need 20 items of moral dilemmas, which pit loyalty against fairness. Hmm. Well, now you go and you say, hey, give me 20 items that pit loyalty, and then boom. And of course, you have to look through it because these machines hallucinate and make weird mistakes. But it's such an exciting starting point for a lot of work. Yeah. I'll tell you a matter of a lot of controversy in, in my field. Some people think the success of these machines, which primarily use deep learning, um, statistics at learning language, say, is evidence that this is how we do it. So, for instance, it's been taken, say, this work has refuted Chomsky. So Chomsky argues we have inborn knowledge of language. You need it in order to learn language. This knowledge involves rules and symbols. And then people say, but, but look, the large language models acquire language of any of this. So Chomsky's wrong. Now, I'm not convinced by this argument. One reason why I'm not convinced is that children learn language under very different circumstances than the training of something like ChatGPT. They're not exposed to, you know, billions of utterances, you know, carefully tailored in a certain way. But I think it does tell us something really interesting. Maybe that there's more than one way to be intelligent. That human intelligence and machine intelligence may be two different ways of getting at the same goal. This question has become not by virtue of any plan, it just sort of worked out this way, a recurring theme or a recurring question on the show. We've had lots of conversations that circle around this, but I really wanna know what you think. And the question is something like, do you think of the self as a real thing? Or do you see the self as a fiction, as some kind of illusion? I'm gonna give what's maybe a minority answer among the sort of people you have on your show, which is, I think the self is real. Really? You and I have selves, and we walk around with them, and they develop, and they change. The, the self is central to moral responsibility and uh, central to long-sustained plans and central to being what we are. So in this way, I part ways with two groups of people. I part ways with people who, say, endorse certain faiths, like, like, like Buddhism, mm -hmm. which insists on the non-existence of the self. And I part ways with some neuroscientists and I find it easy to argue against a neuroscientist. I think there's just a basic confusion. So what they would say is, they would say for one thing, the self exists in a very material brain. And I would say, I totally agree. I don't think there's such a thing as an immaterial soul, a Cartesian soul, like a ghost in a machine. I think I have a self and my self is, uh, is my brain or parts of my brain working together. You know, this is something I've stumbled into a little bit as a result of my interest in the emergent research on psychedelics, we've discovered, I say we, like, like I'm a scientist doing the research. Researchers have discovered this part of the brain, they call it the default mode network. And this is thought to be the neurological home of whatever we think of as the ego or, or the self. And it doesn't really come online until a little bit later in childhood or early teens. And, and this seems like a massive difference between the minds of adults and the minds of, of children. I'm curious what you think. I don't know what to think. It, it, I, I, I'm tempted to think that you, you may be right. I, I think there's something that it's like to be a baby. 
Yeah. There's some sort of conscious experience that babies have. But they may not know as they're having it. In fact, I, I doubt that they know that it is they that is having it. Their experiences may sort of be free-floating. Like, I slam my hand on a car door, and I oh my God, I'm so, I feel the pain, and the pain is mine. And I wonder whether a baby who feels colic just feels pain, just has anxiety and pain in some sort of free-floating way. And it's only a little bit later, I think sooner than many people say, that a concept of self begins to, uh, to coalesce. Certainly it's there by the time they could speak and use pronouns like I and you. That's clear evidence that they distinguish themselves from others. Even earlier on, babies show some capacity for shame and embarrassment. There's an experiment I never did, and I always wanted to do this when I was at, at Yale in the baby lab, where you bring in a baby, and a baby's sitting and getting fussed over, and all of a sudden, every adult in the room stares at the baby. And the question is, do babies like blush? Do they kind of like freak out a little bit? Do they feel like self-conscious? I, this actually, this is an interesting question. It seems to me that babies and toddlers and young children aren't capable of being neurotic, <laughs> right? Like they're not capable of being depressed because there's no ego, right? Because they haven't developed that capacity to these sort of self-destructive thought loops and caught up in memories of the past and anxieties about the future. They're not quite there yet. But am I wrong in thinking that? Do you think I'm underestimating the, the psychological life, the inner life of really young children in that way? I'll give you babies. I'll give you babies. But I think when you get to toddlers, you do find signs of pride, embarrassment, shame, guilt, all of the sort of actually the so-called self-conscious emotions. It's often put in terms of a different humans and non-human animals, which is that you know, animals could feel pain, great pain, and that's, that's horrible. But humans could suffer. Yeah in a way that animals can't. We could, we could feel anxiety about our past and feel guilt and feel loss. And a feeling of suffering doesn't have a non-human equivalent. Your point is that this takes some time to emerge, that babies can't suffer in the same way. One of the awful aspects of a bad experience, I feel like this is gonna last forever. Maybe this is what it's gonna be like for the rest of my life. And I don't think a baby could feel that. I think a baby just goes, ouch, ooh, this hurts. But I do think that stage ends sooner than you would put it. So I, I do think you could find shame and guilt and embarrassment and maybe even an abiding deep sadness in a two-year-old, maybe even in a one-year-old. We got to take one last quick break. But when we come back, if what we mean by the self is just our brain, then do we have free will? or not. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight, and the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? Do you actually believe in free will? You know, because of the, the mechanistic view of the brain, which I think you more or less subscribe to, yeah. does seem to lead quite naturally to the conclusion that we're, we're not as free as we think we are. Yeah. There's a nice analogy that Dan Dennett, 
gives about time, where he says, everybody has a common sense understanding of, of time. And then physicists say, it's all wrong. It works very different than you think it works. But we don't then say, oh, okay, there's no such thing as time. We say, yes, there is time, it is different than our conception. I feel the same way about free will and choice and blame and so on. So I have the sort of standard scientific determinist view that what I'm going to say next and what you're going to say next is a product of the physical world and it's going to happen and it's, it's literally determined. And putting aside quantum, whatever, if there was a, a brilliant scientist or a god in his heavens, he could predict exactly what you and I will be doing an hour from now. Total determinism. But I do think that there's some notion that we still choose to do what we do. Yeah. So I'm a compatibilist. And some people think we're just cowards. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm a compatibilist too. I just couldn't defend it. <laughs> but but here's, here's a shot at a defense. Even in a deterministic universe, you want to make a distinction between something you choose to do versus something you do randomly or something you're forced to do. Yeah. So maybe if you trip and fall down the stairs versus if you decide to dance down the stairs, from a deterministic point of view, they were equally determined. But any psychologist, any scientist in mind would have to say, those are two very different things with different mental processes, different, different things that, that led to it and so on. So I think at the level you want to talk about people, you have to have that distinction. I think anyone who's experienced depression, and I'm not at all ashamed to say that I have and still often do, knows that feeling of helplessness that accompanies it. You know, it's, like, it's like you're a prisoner of your own self-destructive thoughts. And if you had the power to just think different thoughts, you would, but you can't. And that doesn't feel like freedom, yeah. Paul. <laughs> that doesn't feel like free will. And those are the moments where I'm like, wait a minute, how much agency do I really have here? No, I think that's right. I think that's sort of compatible with the way I'm thinking about it, which is there's a common sense notion of agency that has to be compatible with deterministic nature of the universe. What you're going to do is predetermined. That's just going to happen. And that's, that's true. But we also have to make room for a sense of agency that says that in a certain sense, we make choices, are responsible for things. But a sophisticated look at that says that sense of agency is going to be vary to different extremes. It's not as if there's a hard and fast distinction between being compelled or coerced to do something or feeling you have no motivation to do it versus being a freewheeling full agent. Most of life is sort of in between. You know, when we do experiments, we're not allowed to offer too much money. You know, bring your kid in to do a study with us. We'll give you $5. Okay. But if we said, bring your kid into a study with us, we'll give you $50,000. The human subjects review board would say, you can't do that. It's coercive. To which a libertarian economist said, what do you mean it's coercive? It's, it's free. People are free to choose. But then the human subjects were to say, and they're not being crazy here. People might feel that they have no alternative once they have that much money. And I like that because it's an in-between case. They're not literally being forced to just say no. But on the other hand, there's sort of a compulsion. And depression, I think, and other mental illnesses, sometimes in the case of psychosis, you lose any free will at all. Like if you have a spasm or you lash out, you just don't choose it at all. For depression, the inactivity, the suffering, the feeling is I cannot go forward, feels like a severe loss of agency. And I think it, it probably is. Do you think we really, truly understand depression yet? I mean, I'm, I'm sure we've learned quite a bit, but do you think this is still something that we don't quite have our, our arms around? Um, I know that's a big question. Sorry. I, you know, but no, but I, I, I have an answer to that because, you know, there's some things we know about mental illnesses and we know about treatment and we know about medication and, you know, you should seek treatment if you have problems because evidence is it works, but Clinical psychology has not been a success story of our field. I quote the last director of NIMH who basically says, I worked for NIMH for the last 13 years and we spent billions of dollars and we have made very little progress. We have not reduced hospitalization. We do not reduce suicides. We do not really know. We don't have good theories of what causes depression or how to cure it. Same with anxiety disorders, same with schizophrenia. We have theories, we're working on them, but it's, it's been, progress has been surprisingly slow. Yeah. 
I think there's one insight which I find interesting and more and more people have been looking at it, which is there's long been a tendency to treat things like depression, anxiety disorders, panic attacks, schizophrenia as these discrete disorders, like you got COVID or you got cancer. You know, it could be in varying extremes forms, but you either got it or you don't. And more and more people are moving to a sort of a, a continuous model, which is there's gradations of sadness and inactivity and, and lack of delight in the world. And some degree of it is actually healthy. It's fine, particularly for anxiety. If you had no anxiety, you'd be in big trouble. You'd be dead by now. You need some anxiety. But when it gets to too much on a continuum, we classify it as a mental disorder. There's a reality to it. If someone's eight foot tall, they're tall. They're a tall person. But it's kind of arbitrary where you cut the line, as arbitrary as saying, you know, 19-year-olds could drink and 17-year-olds can't. And because there's this line drawing, a lot that goes on to mental illness becomes a matter of politics or morality or what insurance companies are willing to pay or what we as a society think is an acceptable amount of deviance. You know, I was thinking about how everything I was interested in asking you, how it all tied together. And to me, everything returns to this fundamental question, which is how much control do we really have over our own minds? And the answer seems to be that we may not have as much as we'd like to believe, though we do have some. Yeah. And to the extent we don't have as much as we'd like to believe, that has pretty profound consequences for our lives, right? I mean, if we're confused about ourselves and our capacity to become otherwise, then we'll probably end up bumping up against a, a wall over and over again. And that does not seem like a recipe for fulfillment or happiness. Yeah. People who study motivation and self-control and addiction I've wrestled with this issue. So let's put aside the sort of deterministic nature of the universe, which is from a certain perspective, we have no control ever. What we're doing has been, as soon as the universe was created, our paths were set. But let's, let's avoid that. What if I want to lose weight or stop drinking or be nicer to the people around me? I think one of the lessons of psychology of, of a lot of years is that simply trying with good intention, focusing our willpower is not the right way to do it. We do much better if we try to situate, if we try to um, manipulate the world and our circumstances so as to sort of set us to go in the direction we want rather than directly try it. It's very vague, but here, here's the sort of thing I'm thinking of, which is if you're trying to lose weight, it's, it's probably not a good idea to buy the jumbo box of cookies and then exert your willpower not to eat them. Right, right. Rather, don't bring the cookies into the house. You'd be, okay, people know that. Um, I'm almost become kind of pro-bureaucracy of a certain sort which is, I think the world often works well when situations are set up in a certain way that deprives people of choices in cases where they feel they would make the wrong choices. I know this is a bit of a preposterous question, but we're friends, so I'm going to ask it anyway. What is the single most important insight you've had about the mind? If there was one thing you could slap on a billboard so that everyone could see it every day and be reminded of it every day, what would it be? Okay. Um, on the billboard would be the five words, don't listen to your heart. Oh, that's spicy. <laughs> Do tell. Yeah. Don't listen to your heart. Okay. We have unconscious minds that give us quick and dirty decisions and outputs. And in the real world, sometimes very quick impressions matter and very quick judgments matter. And it's okay to be governed by them because we don't have an alternative. But- I'm a big fan of rationality and reason. And I'm a big fan of morality and trying to do the right thing. And so much of that involves not heeding our gut impulses, not heeding our instincts. In morality, often our gut impulse is, oh, that's disgusting. Those people should be punished. Or they're my friends. They could do no wrong. That's what the gut tells you right away. And you need to step back and say, you know, okay, well, let's look, are people being hurt? Is this fair? The deliberative process, which is slower, more difficult, often imperfect, but I think that's worth relying on in just about every aspect of life when you can over your gut. Your gut is racist. Your gut is self-serving. Your gut is biased. 
and rationality, rational liberation, far from perfect, but is, is much better. But there are times where your gut is actually quite useful. Evolution has, has programmed these feelings of fear and anxiety for very good reasons, you know? Yeah. If you're in an unfamiliar place and someone walks into the room and something's not quite right about that person, they don't belong there, or something's just off, something in your, in your gut tells you, danger, danger. And you may be right, and also you may be wrong, but there's, yep. there's got to be some compatibilist. <laughs> I, take where you, I think we're aligned on the rationality thing, but I'm just trying to make the case for, for the gut sometimes. Yeah. And somebody I'm reacting to everybody who says, who tells the story of, you know, oh, and this guy walked in a room and I knew right away in a split second he was trouble. And so I avoided him and saved my life. But I think on, in the real world, it's probably he was black. And my gut told me, warning, warning, yeah. because you, you, your gut's a racist. Or somebody said this idea and it transformed my life because I immediately believed him. But even because he's your friend and your gut, your gut likes your friends. I'm not denying the possibility of a very quick understanding that's somewhat smarter than a more deliberative understanding. But I'll tell you, I think those things are actually exceptions and not the rule. I think we need our gut because sometimes we do need to make decisions in a fraction of a second. There's no time for deliberation. But I am a fan of the power of the, I won't say uniquely human power now, but uh, the power to sort of reason, deliberate, and think things over. And I think we're nicer when we do that, and I think we're better. Yeah, I mean, I tried to stand up a little bit for the gut there, but you just uh, you just bulldozed right over it. I'm trying. You're the wrong guy to kind of uh, attack rationality. We're kindred spirits here. I'm going to take that as a compliment. <laughs> it is, it is. <laughs> do you think we'll ever have a unified theory of the mind, Paul? Do you think we'll ever get there? Or is there just too many minds? Is the mind too complicated to ever have anything like that? I think we're not going to ever have a theory, unified theory of the mind for exactly the reason you just gave, because there's none to be had. Just like we're never going to have a unified theory of the physical body, because the story of the foot its evolution and structure is very different from the story of a gallbladder. Yeah. And similarly, I think the story of how language works is going to be very different from the story of sexual desire, from the story of memory and rage and so on. Obviously, there are sort of commonalities. So for instance, maybe the same physical substrate of neurons underlie all of these things, and you could learn some, some generalizations, but the story of the mind is going to be um, many stories. Once again, the book is called Psych, The Story of the Human Mind. Paul, you are now officially, and I mean this, a friend of the show. So thanks for coming in again. <laughs> Thank you very much. I've always <laughs> wanted that role. Eric Janikas is our producer. Patrick Boyd and Brandon McFarlane engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. I had a lot of fun with Paul. He's just a great psychologist who has a knack for explaining really difficult, complicated ideas in kind of fun, accessible ways. As always, let us know what you think. Drop us a line at the gray area at vox.com. We love reading what you have to say, so don't hold back. Let us have it. If you appreciated this episode, share it with your friends on the socials. New episodes of The Gray Area drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.